great introduction. I can hardly wait to hear myself. That was wonderful. Thank you for uh, letting us come back. We love this place. Uh, if you're a freshman and haven't heard me speak, then you need to know that my wife and I both graduated from this uh, great institution, as did all three of our children, none of whom we made come here. They tried to go other places, but the Spirit of God was stronger in their lives and brought them here, and uh, we're excited about that. Uh, it's a great privilege, actually, as well, and a, and a pleasure to be able to minister in a church that is here, that we see uh, so many of you in, as part of our congregation. We see all of you as part of our community here, and with us, regardless of what uh, church you go to, we're all praying together that the winds of revival would sweep down through this valley. I've been praying that for a long time, since 1974 when I came here as a freshman. And uh, we're in this together. We're in this because we're part of something that's great big. It's so much bigger than ourselves, so much older than ourselves, and it's called the church. Now, I grew up in Spokane, Washington, the son of a Baptist preacher. And my dad told me all the time, uh, you're a Baptist born and a Baptist bred, and when you die, you're a Baptist dead. Okay? And, and yet, uh, I didn't really get it. Not the Baptist thing, but the Jesus thing. All I can remember growing up in being in our campus, our church campus at Euclid Avenue Baptist Church in Spokane, was that I grew up thinking my dad owned the church. Uh, and people would yell at me, hey, you shouldn't do this. And I'd say, yes, I can, because my dad owns the church. And my mom was very much a part of it. She used to, one word she always used to use, she'd see me running or kicking a soccer ball through a window, which I did on two occasions in the basement of the building. And she'd say, David, you need to behave. Behave. So I was studying in the, in the epistles of Paul to Timothy, and I came across this text in 1 Timothy chapter 3, where in his first letter to young Timothy, he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So that's what I want to talk about this morning. And I know you guys are thinking, oh my goodness, we know how to behave. We are master's university students. You once, last time I was here, you were only college students. Now you're university students. And your behavior has, uh, has been notched up a level, I'm sure. But I figured if Paul told Timothy, who was a pastor in Ephesus, how to behave, then it's okay for us to, to think about it again. We want to take our place as those who are responsible to live out the message of Christ, to live out the winsomeness of Christ, to live out the grace and the truth of Christ before a watching world as part of this thing called the church. And so I want to, I want to talk about that. And what we find here is that Paul asks Timothy to think about his behavior in the church through four different lenses, let's say. The first one, he says, is that you need to understand that the church is actually the household of God. That's a word, as we'll see, that means a family. The church is a family. It's to act as a family. It's to be gracious and loyal and honest and loving and uh, with each other, for each other, as families are supposed to be. The second thing he says is the church is the assembly of the living God. It talks about ownership. It also talks about the fact that the church is bigger than you and I know. It is worldwide. It is down through history. So the first two things tell us who we are. We're a family, but we're something that's bigger than that, this, this universal, invisible body of Christ. Then the next two lenses, he says, and this is what you're supposed to do. He says, you're a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, I know all of you know what a buttress is, but we'll explore that. And then the last thing I believe he's saying is that we are all part of the mechanism whereby the truth of Jesus Christ, the apostolic truth, is ours to, now get this, to protect and to pass on 
to the next generation. God has no grandchildren. I'll let that sink in. Uh, just because one generation does well is no guarantee the next one will. Each generation must have its own commitment to Christ, must have its own commitment to the church, its own commitment to revival, to evangelism, its own commitment to love and grace, its own commitment. Every uh, great theologian has quoted, whoever said this first, that the church is always one generation from extinction. And you guys, uh, as far as I'm concerned, are the best hope for the church in America and around the world after those of us who have uh, been laboring in it aren't here anymore. So let's look at this. This whole idea of living out how we are as the church, I think the question is made even more complex when we realize that we're actually now living in what we would call a post-Christian world, a post-religious world. I, I can tell you that when I grew up, uh, Moses, uh, contrary to popular opinion, Moses and I were not in the same high school graduating class either. It wasn't that long ago. But for the most part, the church was respected. Uh, even if people didn't go, they sent their kids. And they said, yeah, we want our kids to have a little religious knowledge. We want them to have a little moral teaching. And it used to be that the biggest Sundays of the year were the ones closest to Christmas and then Easter. And that's changed. We used to call them CEO Christians. Christmas and Easter only. Okay? And on Christmas Day, we used to, or on uh, Resurrection Sunday, we used to wish them Merry Christmas because we knew we wouldn't see them till then. But a strange thing happened. You probably saw it this year. Christmas was on a Sunday. And not only wasn't it the biggest Sunday attended, attended uh, Sunday of the year, a lot of churches actually decided not to have services on Christmas Day. Now, regardless of what you think about that, it is a huge tidal shift in the way that our culture looks now at, at church, at religion, at the Bible, at Christianity. Many today are not asking, how should I behave in the church? Many in your generation are saying, why do we even need the church? This organized religion is not something that has actually provided any benefit. It's part of this whole postmodern turn, right? The idea that the major institutions of our, of our world, in the American culture, science, education, medicine, government, church, they've all made these tremendous promises. Education, you know, with Dewey and the rest of those guys said, if we can just educate everybody, we will do away with man's inhumanity to man. The reason there's war and conflict is because we just don't know each other. We're going to educate and become... Uh, accepting and tolerant. And then science said, we're going to involve yourselves in so many new things, new inventions, that we're going to make life easier, there's going to be more leisure time. Oh my goodness, then they invented the cell phone. And I don't know, you go to a restaurant now and people are sitting across from each other and what are they doing? They're texting each other instead of talking. We have all these things, but our lives are messier than ever. Medicine said, you know, just give us enough money and we will wipe out disease. And now we have diseases that are new and, and bugs that are resistant to the greatest antibiotics that we've ever created. Government said, you know what, we are going to wipe out poverty and we're going uh, to have no more wars, the UN said. And then Vietnam happened. Some of you, you've heard that, right? Vietnam. And suddenly, I believe that was the beginning of when our society began to say, wait a minute, all of these major institutions that are making these promises, they're not, they're not being fulfilled. But the most important one was that the church, across the United States, the church in general had said, hey, try Jesus. Jesus loves you. Come to him and he's going gonna to deal with your addictions, he's going to deal with your poverty you know, your, your car's not going to break, your dog's going to come back, everything's going to be fine. You're gonna when I was in this, uh, in this school, I was in a singing group. I hate to admit it, but I was a music major. 
Not that there's anything wrong with that. Okay. And we used to sing a song in this little group. It went like this. No more tears, no more sorrow. No more worries about tomorrow. You're going to love your new life with the Lord. And I, I don't know, I guess I liked the melody. It had a good beat. I never really thought about the theology of that. But the church used to make these promises that for very little investment, the investment of a little bit of faith, if you believed the minimum of truth necessary to get on the bus to heaven, then God was obligated to give you the life that you wanted. And so it became just like the other institutions in our world and uh, the emerging generations coming out of the Vietnam War, they were saying, you know what? The church is it's a power play, just like government is and science and education. They're making promises they can't keep. And from that point on, little by little, the organized church, the local church in America began to be seen as not only not important, but actually almost the enemy. That's the world that we now live in. I often talk in our place about the new kind of religion in America, Jesus as life coach. It's, uh, you know, come to Jesus, he'll help you make better decisions. He'll bring you better relationships. You'll be a better dad, you'll be a better mom. Yeah. You'll just be better at everything. He's going to help you. And, and so people come and they say, yeah, you know what, my life's a mess, but I came to Grace Baptist Church and I met some guys and I got in a Bible study and they they said, you know, Jesus is just really great, and so I decided I'd follow Jesus, and now my life is better. What's missing? Anyone? Class? What's missing is the need for Jesus Christ to take my sin and feel the full, unobstructed wrath of God on the cross in my place and for my benefit. The big fancy term for that is moralistic therapeutic deism. You can look it up. It's this idea that God is a deistic God. He's out there somewhere. He exists to help me as a therapist does to help make me a good person, but I get to describe what good is. Now, I'm just mentioning some of this because this is the church, this is the uh, environment into which you all are going to go out in service, go out in leadership, Go out in membership, in, part, in partnership with Christ and the Holy Spirit through the gospel to try and be part of the greatest rescue mission ever. And so we need to remember how we're supposed to behave in the church, especially in the midst of this kind of environment. Post-Christian, post-religious, post-God. And an environment where in many ways while many were fighting for conservative political clout, Satan snuck into the church and stole the gospel and replaced it with Jesus as life coach. So we're going to go back to the city of Ephesus. And we're going to see what Paul asked Timothy to be and to do with regard to behavior in the church. First thing we see is that being in Christ and part of his church means that there is a way to where to behave. We are to be distinctive. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we are God's workmanship. We are his show-off piece. We are to be a demonstration to the world that, that when God's grace takes over your life, when his truth rules your decision-making, when you love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, when you decide that you will deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him, this is what your life looks like. We need more and more and more of winsome, conspicuous Christ following. What we don't need more of is arrogant, mean-spirited Christ following. We also don't need more of wimpy I'm not going to let anybody know that I'm a Christ follower, Christ following. I don't even know if that makes sense, but you get it, right? In John chapter 1, John tells us that the glory of Christ was full of both grace 
and truth. You know what grace is, right? I hope you do. People don't earn grace, either from Christ or from us. And we need to have our hearts full of grace and full of truth. And I got to tell you, it's difficult in this world because our personalities cause us to gravitate one way or the other. And perhaps one of the ways that we are having a foot in both camps is to see what Paul wrote to Timothy. First of all, he says, in verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the, here's the first thing, household of God. First way to word to view the church is as a household. Now, that's not a word that we use a lot, but it's found throughout the scriptures. In almost every one of Paul's epistles, he has a household code that uh, husbands and wives are to follow. And there's love, and there's respect, and there's sacrifice. And then there's a parent-child household code that fathers are to raise their children not to exasperate them, but to grow them in a way that they appreciate God, and they appreciate God the Son, and they appreciate God's Word. And then there's even a household code for masters and servants. Why? Because they were part of the household. And so what we find when he says that the church, that that's what we call it, is the household of God, he's really saying, that's God's family. You know, one of the great illustrations that Paul uses of the church is that we've been adopted into the family of God. That's pretty cool. And in the Roman world, you didn't adopt little babies. In the Roman world, to be adopted meant that uh, a rich family... Unfortunately, looked at their own kids and thought they were losers and didn't want to lose everything, didn't want to leave anything to them. So they would go to a poorer family who had, you know, a, a 10-year-old boy or a 12-year-old boy, and they would pay money and they would adopt him and make him their heir. That's why in the scriptures, the adoption that we have into the family of God is almost always connected with the inheritance that we are then given that we don't deserve. We don't deserve the position in the family and we don't deserve the inheritance that is ours because we have a position in the family. And that's why we need to just settle down a little bit in this phrase. We're in the family of God. Now I know some of you didn't come from the best family. Some of you maybe didn't have the best father. Here's the good news. God the Father is the perfect father. The family of God is an eternal family. And we don't deserve to be there, but we're there because of his great love. And if you want to kind of put all of the, the illustrations together, God as a celestial judge, right? He's up high. He's part of the, he is the Supreme Court, by the way. And we come before him with all of our messiness and all of our sin, all of the things we've done that we shouldn't do and the things we didn't do that we should have done. And then Christ steps up as our attorney, our advocate. And even as God the Father is passing judgment and saying that for all of these sins, actually for any one of these sins, uh, you are worthy to be condemned eternally and separated from me, but my advocate says, but I paid the price. I took it all. Colossians 2 says that he took the certificate of, you know, charges that were contrary to me. And he, he took them out of the way as he was heading for the cross. There was my cell and he took it and he nailed it to his cross. And now his, the sign over his head detailed all of my charges. And they were paid in full. And so the judge says, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. You're justified by faith. But then, it's really cool, the judge takes off his judgely robe. Is that a word? Takes off his, what do they call it? Robe, cape, I don't know. And he puts on, in my illustration, he puts on a cardigan. You know, it's kind of brown and it's, and he's got, turns out he's got sweatpants on. And he comes down and he puts his arm around me and he says, not only have I declared you justified, I've declared you righteous, I'm taking you home. You're part of my family. I am yours forever. I am the father you've always wanted if you didn't have one like this. And I think Paul is telling Timothy, you know, 
the, the first lens you should see, you, through which you should see the church, is that it's God's family. Now, this, this family motif tells us a lot of things. It tells us, number one, that we truly are brothers and sisters in Christ, and that we are to treat one another with the respect that says, when I look at you, I need to know that you experienced the same thing I experienced, that because of Christ, who died in your place and for your benefit, you have been declared righteous, accepted by God, who has now adopted you into the family. So that means you and I, we are two of the privileged people in this universe, and we need to live like it. We're brothers and sisters. Paul goes so far in 2 Corinthians 5.16. We all know 5.17, right? And if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. We all know 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him and knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God in him. But what we often forget about is verse 16 where Paul is saying that because we're in Christ, it changes the way we see each other. Look at this. He says, from now on, therefore... We regard no one according to the flesh. You know what Americans do? We critique everybody according to the flesh, don't we? Yeah. You're either too big or too small, too tall, too short, too heavy, too skinny, too blonde, not blonde enough. You even critique me because I don't have any hair. God only made a few perfect heads and the rest he covered up. I just want you to know that. <laughs> Do you realize that we live in a world that is all about judging each other by appearance? We fight against that, don't we? We, we fight against that as we're largely raising our daughters. That we live in a world that forces primarily our daughters to think of themselves as they are temporally in the flesh whether they have enough or too much. And Paul says, you know what, from now on, therefore, because of what God has done in adopting us into his own family, we should now look at each other. He says, we, we don't regard anybody according to the flesh. We once did. Because, he says in the next verse, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature. If you're in the family of God, that means you have more in common with Christ than who you used to be. We're in danger of losing that in the church. This familial concept. Peter said it this way, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart for the right reasons. What's the best reason to love someone that maybe you don't really have anything in common, in, common with? If they're in the church... It's because God has loved them eternally in Christ and has adopted them into his family. Well, he says, there's another reason, there's another way that we are to see each other. He says, not only are we the household of God, and that's, the word there speaks to a smaller grouping. He says, this household of God is also the church, the ecclesia, the assembly of the living God. And the word assembly has the idea of a, of a larger group probably made up of a lot of different households. And what we can say is that we can, we can expand that to understand that while we are a household of God, we're also part of something that is universal. You know, I don't know how much trouble I want to get in here, but I'm going to go ahead and... I want to talk about tribalism. Tribalism is this, this horrible concept that whatever my tribe is... Uh, I had, Sherilyn and I had breakfast with, uh, with Adam Ashoff today. Right? Did I say that right? I said it right. And he is of the Pittsburgh Steeler tribe. <laughs> right? I'm in trouble already. I guess there's a game coming up this Sunday between, in my opinion, a couple inferior teams. The best teams aren't even in the Super Bowl, right? The... the the righteous men from Seattle should be there. Okay, I'm just joking around, but already that's tribalism, isn't it? No, it is. Now, it doesn't matter much. 
But we're seeing tribalism played out on a national scene today over uh, the president's appointments to, the cap to his cabinet, over the Supreme Court. We are seeing it played out as well in church. We are seeing tribalism. I'm of this perspective. I'm of that perspective. We've heard about churches that split over things like the timing of services or whether a certain children's program is allowed to continue. And whether we know it or not, we're being sucked down this drain of division over things that we actually should at least discuss and deal with our differences differently than those who don't know Jesus. Why? Because we're part of the assembly of the living God. It's very important, Paul says, Timothy, you need to know that that little church in Ephesus isn't yours. I just came from a pastor's conference, and the big question is, well, how, how's your church doing? And I'm just enough of a brat to say, I don't have a church. I did. And the guy looked at me like, then why are you here? It's a pastor's conference. We need to get back to the understanding that the church belongs to God. It says right here, it's the church, the assembly of who? Of the living God. And we need to understand that the, the nature of the church is that God sees one church made up of all those who are united by faith to Christ, in whom the Spirit dwells, regardless of the county, the city, the state, the country, the continent that they live on. It is a worldwide phenomena that we are part of. It's local, but at Grace Baptist, every time we share the Lord's Supper, we take time to pray for another church in town, because we believe that there are, uh, technically speaking, there's one church in Santa Clarita, and there are several local representations of that church, and we need to be careful that we don't become tribal in our understanding of that, and I'll let you in on a it's not really a secret. I've told a lot of people. The reason we pray for another church every month is because I am so competitive. And, you know, really there's only two kinds of people in the world, those who attend Grace Baptist and those who should, right? <laughs> and that's wrong. That's tribalism. Please look out for it. Watch out for it. Please understand that the church isn't a location. It's not a, it's not a building. I, I think words matter. They, they really matter to me. And so when we, when we say the church is over there, or I'm going to church, please, please understand, you don't go to church. You are the church, right? And your generation needs to break the mold of this poor designation that we've grown up with that teaches our children the church is over there they think that's where God lives, that's where you go to worship, that's where you go to learn the truth. But if you're on the, you know, if you're in, at work, or you're on the soccer field, or you're in the grocery store, that's not where God is. The church is not a building. It's not bricks and boards and walls and windows. In fact, the, the physical building, we used to say in the Northwest, is a rain shelter. Here it's a sun shelter. That's all it is. The church is not merely an organization. It's not just an impersonal function in society. It's a family. It's a people that's called out of darkness into light. It's an, I love this idea that he called us out of darkness into light, outfitted us with the armor of God and the message of the gospel, and sent us back into the darkness as agents of light, right? You see, as soon as in our minds we begin to identify the church with a particular location that has doors and classrooms and an auditorium and a sound system, and that's where we have a worship center, and that's where we have a worship band, and that's where we sing worship music. It teaches our hearts and the next generation that God somehow is localized, worship is centralized, and if you want to do any of those things, you've got to go there, when in actuality what God wants is He wants His church to be a worshiping, praising, evangelistic force wherever we are. Right? I'm going to start preaching here any minute. The other thing that it helps us when we understand that the church is universal, it really helps us to partner in the mission of the church. 
If we keep this idea that the church is localized and that that's where ministry happens, and that if you're going to serve the church, you've got to be on the campus, it really erodes the understanding that the mission of the church is everywhere. Understanding the nature of the church allows us to get a loftier picture of the mission, that we're invited to partner, I love this, with Jesus in the greatest rescue mission ever. Many years ago, there was a, there was a movie called The Guardian. And it was, I forgot the guy's name. He starred in it. You probably don't know him anyway, he's old now. Kevin Costner, yeah, oh, thank you. There's a few old souls here. And he was a rescue swimmer with the Coast Guard. And somebody asked him, you know, there's a, there's a shipwreck and there's all these people out there. How do you rescue them? And he says, I jump in the water. I swim as fast as I can. I rescue as many as I can. That's the mission of the gospel. We go out into the, the storms of life. We go out into, you know, the, the, the world of the marketplace, of our jobs, of our neighborhoods, and we're rescue swimmers. And to the extent that we teach ourselves and our kids that, no, everything's done on this, this campus, in this building, because that's the worship center, that's the preaching center, whether we know it or not, we have devolved the mission of Christ to something that can be scheduled, that can be planned, that we can make attractive. And the mission of Christ is in and through his church, his family, as they are out in the darkness holding forth the word of faith. We're asked to recognize the mission of the church and to be participating in it as evidence that we truly love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, including our time. We need to also diligently work at preserving the unity of the church. It's interesting to me in Ephesians chapter 4, after Paul has spent the first three chapters talking theology, and the theme of the book of Ephesians is all about the unity between Jew and Gentile in Christ, that he's broken down the wall between them and made them both into one new man. And then in chapter 4, he says, Therefore, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We don't create unity. We maintain the unity that God has already done, put together, because he has justified and adopted individuals into his family, and those families together make up the assembly, the church, we need to be eager to maintain it. This means that divisive action on our part is its really rebellion against the Spirit of God. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have differences. Please understand me. What's not, important, uh, 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 what's not as important as the differences is the way we deal with differences. We need to deal with them differently than those who don't know Jesus. The, the standard operating procedure for dealing with those you disagree with is to separate from them and then say, you say things about them to make others and yourself feel good about separating from them. We need to be very, very careful because the world in which we live now thinks that the church is divisive. Before moving to California, Sherilyn and I moved in St. Charles, we lived in St. Charles, Illinois. And uh, we had one high school in town, St. Charles High School, which was convenient since we were in St. Charles. And I, some of you will get that later. So I, on my way from my house to the church office where I worked, I had to go right past St. Charles High School. And as a lot of small Midwestern towns do, they have these huge gymnasiums, and they paint on the side of it the name of their teams, and I would go by this every morning and every evening, and it said, St. Charles High School, home of the fighting saints. Okay, let me say that again. Home of the fighting saints. My wife's laughing. Thank you, dear. Because there are several times when I would come home from 
my church office where I would think, we ought to paint that on the side of our church. <laughs> if we were going to be honest. Some of the nastiest arguments and fights I've ever seen have been amongst those who claim to be part of the family of God. You can be right and be wrong. You can be right theologically and be wrong in the way that you handle it. Okay? Uh, I'm Reformed. You guys, some of you have been in my classes. You know I'm a five-point Calvinist. If there were 30 points, I'd be a 30-point Calvinist. In fact, I'm trying to figure out the other 25. But you know what we don't need? We don't need rams. That's my term for reformed angry men. <laughs> you know who you are. And the ram keeps butting heads with everything that he can find. Mostly because he needs to prove to himself that what he believes is right. But if what we believe is right, it ought to make us better people. It ought to make us more generous. It ought to make us more compassionate, more patient. Because if what we believe is right, it is God's tools to make us more like Jesus Christ. We need to diligently preserve the unity of the body, beginning with understanding that there is a way to come across with those with whom we disagree. I was telling uh, Adam this morning at breakfast that I'm in a, a cohort with uh, five other guys around the country, none of whom agree with me theologically. And yet I've learned from those guys, while I disagree with some of their viewpoints, and we're working through them, it's great fun. I can't disagree with their lives. You know what? They love Jesus Christ. They actually love the gospel. And they don't know they don't know, and that's why God brought me into their lives. And so we're going to do it in a way, hopefully, that is winsome. We need to be winsome and courageous at the same time. Okay, you're starting to look at me. Go on. Okay, Gabe, I'm going on. We need to consistently support the health of the church. Let me talk to you about attendance. Uh, I just want to tell you guys, you're very mobile right now. You're away from home, a lot of you, for the first time. You can go anytime you want. You can go anywhere you want. I remember those days. For Sherilyn and I, it was when I was in seminary. And we were in Portland, Oregon. We'd had to move from our home church in Tacoma for, well, I got kicked out of seminary and had to move down to Portland. That, there you go. And we were bitter and mad, and so we went to Bedside Baptist with Dr. Sheets several weekends. We did. I know what it's like. Well, let, let me tell you, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. You don't have to go home to be married either, but if you're married, it makes it a lot better. I want to tell you that it's a privilege to be part of a local church. Find one. Be it wherever you are. Be all there. Some of you have a tendency, you know who you are, that your parents have taught you kind of a consumer mentality. Uh, they go to this grocery store for their meat and this grocery store for their produce. And some of you go over here for this and but you like the music better over here, and, and oh, my friends are going here. I, I would just, I would ask you to start training your will to do what is right rather than what you think is going to be more fun. And there are, all over this valley, there are pastors like me who are praying, Lord, would you send us some really good-hearted people who have a, a desire for the mission of the church? We're, we're dying here. We could, there are small churches around here who absolutely need what you guys have. Wherever you are, be all there. Well, I've got I to keep going here. The third thing he says, not only what we are to be, but what we are to do as the church. The church of the living God, living God a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, I'm just going to go out and say that the word that's translated buttress in the ESV you won't find that definition very many places, if at all. What you'll find is that it really talks about a very firm, a base, kind of a foundation. And what Pliny in his natural history tells us about the, the 
Temple of Diana, or also known as the Temple of Artemis, in Ephesus. It dominated the landscape. That's what it was known for, this goddess. You remember in Acts when Paul was there, the silversmiths would make these little statues of the goddess Diana, and that's a big part of their commerce. And so when Paul came in and said, there's no such thing as idols, there's only one living God, it really, really impacted their business, and they got all mad at him. And so when he says that the church is the pillar, and really it's the, it's the foundation and the pillar of the truth, he's using the temple of Diana as this huge illustration. When you came into the port of Ephesus, you'd look up on a little hill, and there it was. It was one and a half football fields long, one and a half football fields width-wise, and it had two platforms, one smaller than the other. Then there were 127 pillars, 15 feet around, 60 feet tall, holding up this massive roof around the edge of which were reliefs of the goddess doing various things. And that building was the, well, it was the logo of Ephesus. And those pillars and that foundation held up this massive roof that when you saw it from a distance you knew that's where Diana, that's where Artemis is honored, is worshipped. And it is the center of our commerce. And so Paul is saying, you know what, Timothy? This church, this household of God, this assembly, it has the same role in society. It is the foundation and the pillars that hold up the roof that says this is where God Almighty is honored. This is where God the Son is proclaimed. This is where the people of God recognize their mission. And it's truth that makes us what God wants us to be. Why? Because without the truth of the gospel, without the truth of the word, we don't have a message that will in any way help the world in which we're living. So the question is, how are we being part of the mechanism that is maintaining, preserving, and holding up the truth of God? I'm just going to tell you what you need to do, and you know it. Number one, you need to know the Bible, and that's why you're here, right? But don't just read what you have to read. Read, read your Bible, and don't just read across the Bible. Read along the Bible. Get the big themes. Understand how the Old Testament themes fit into the New Testament. Study your biblical theology as a foundation for your systematic theology. It's great to know all the hit piles and the passives and all that stuff, but please get the message that the gospel, that the writers are giving. Make sure you're understanding the Bible the way the authors have meant it to be understood. Also, would you understand and learn what, what worship is? Uh, it's, not, it's not music. Music is just a tool for worship, right? Music is to worship what a hammer is to a house. If I hold up a hammer and say, this is a house, you're going to go, well, he's got Alzheimer's already. No, a, a hammer is what you can use to build a house. You can also use it to hurt your fingers. Music is a tool, a great tool, through which you can engage with Almighty God. That's what worship is. You can take advantage of it. You can also use it selfishly. So as you are growing in your understanding of how you're going to be part of this this great thing called the assembly of the holy God, and you're going to hold up the truth. Be learning now and talking about and identifying yourself with really the truth of God's word, the truth of worship. Get really good at learning from God's word and applying the preaching of the word. Be an active listener. And when you're in your church and your pastor's up there preaching, every once in a while, nod, smile. He'll think you're listening. It's a real encouragement to him. Lastly, in verse 16, he says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And then we have this, this strange, I think it's three, ver, three stanzas of two lines each. There are others who think it's only two, um, but I'll tell you what I think. But the question is, why would somebody put together what we call a creedal hymn? Why would they take six truths that summarize Jesus Christ 
and his gospel and the final victory of the gospel? Why would they put it in a poetic, probably singable form? My answer is that this is how you preserve and pass along the truth of God. People didn't have their, their pocket Old Testaments at that time. Grudem hadn't written his, uh, uh, excuse me, MacArthur had not written his systematic theology yet. So they didn't have it. He and Mayhew were years away from doing that. And so they would take the most important things and they would put them in a memorable form that could be sung. It's kind of like the catechisms of the, of the olden days. And I think what, it, what Paul is telling Timothy is, Timothy, yes, your, your group is part of the family of God and you are part of the assembly of the living God. You belong to him. It's a worldwide mission that you're involved with. And yes, you need to, and your people, hold up the truth so that the world can see this is where God is honored, where Christ is revered, where he's taught, where he's followed. This is the place. We'll know, they'll know us by our truth and by our love. But he says, you know what, Tim? You also need to put it in a form that'll, that'll be transferable to the next generation. And notice what he does. Number one, he summarizes the mystery of godliness. Now in Pauline literature, you know the mystery is always in his mind. The intention of God in the Old Testament to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant, to send the he of Genesis 3.15 uh, the, the child of Isaiah 9, right? All of that. And the mystery is, who's it going to be? It's going to be both God and man who himself is going to take on the sin of the world and wash it away and resurrect, having victory over death with the promise that one day that victory will be pervasive over all the new earth where we will dwell with him quite apart from the possibility of sin. And he summarizes all that, get this, in Jesus Look what he says. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. What's that mean? Well, manifested in the flesh is the incarnation. He came as a man, but as a man, he was also God, and his deity was vindicated by the Spirit through whom the miracles, especially the resurrection came, which was that which absolutely guaranteed perfect evidence that Jesus Christ was the God-man that the Old Testament said would come. Secondly, he was seen by angels. This is almost certainly, uh, it speaks to the tradition that Jesus' post-resurrection appearance was before the heavenly hosts. We find it in Hebrews 1, where it says, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he had inherited. So after he came and was vindicated, he rose. He's now appearing before the angels, but guess what? He is also being proclaimed among the nations. This is a picture that even though Jesus Christ ascended back to heaven, he is still at work in and through his apostles and now in and through his church, taking his message against all odds, still victorious, worldwide. Which, by the way, is previewed on the day of Pentecost. It's a pre-enactment of the eventual fulfillment of worldwide gospel permeation because all those people are hearing the gospel, what? In their own language as these men are proclaiming the mighty acts of God. Proclaimed amongst the nations. Third stanza, believed on in the world. This is, this is one of the, the most satisfying, encouraging little sentences in the Bible. Why? Because we're wondering, Lord... We're taking the gospel to Haiti. We're taking the gospel to Jakarta. We're taking the gospel to Iran. Is it going to work? It just seems, if you just look at the headlines, that evil is winning. That darkness is overcoming the light. And so, what those who wrote this want to keep in front of the church is that the end is guaranteed. That in one, at one day, there's going to be a... a a multitude that no one can number. Now, I know that, that bothers you mathematicians. From every tribe and nation and tongue under heaven. And they're going to stand before the throne and they're going to say, worthy is the lamb who was slain. I read the end. We win. Don't get discouraged. The power is the gospel. 
He's going to be believed on in the world and then lastly taken up in glory. Certainly, the stress here in some way is on his ascension, but it's on what his ascension represents, and that is the exaltation of Christ. As he said in John 14, as he prayed in the garden, I glorified you on earth, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence. And Mark tells us, In verse 38 of chapter 8, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So this idea of taken up in glory, the ascension was just the beginning of the exaltation of Christ that will finally be culminated when he returns again in the glory of his Father. Our part is to preserve and pass along this truth. How do we do that? Well, I just want to leave you with this. Commit yourself to being a consistent, winsome, knowledgeable, everyday evangelist. One of the dark sides of our reform position is that we become so adamant about the doctrine of election that we forget sometimes, at least practically, this great promise All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, what? I'll never cast out. You don't know how God might be moving someone towards salvation who's in your life. I I fully believe that God is drawing people to Jesus. And we get to intersect with them. And I don't know, maybe God uses 1,722 steps in somebody's life. It's, it's circumstances, it's friendship, it's a song, it's you know, a, a Bible verse, hopefully it's a sermon somewhere along the line. But God is drawing them step by step by step by step. You may not be there at the end. You may be, in God's providence, steps 532 through 612. Or you may have a chance encounter with somebody and your responsibility is to give the gospel by lip and or by life and be usable to God to bring them from step 613 to 614. You don't know. But what we need more and more are those who understand the family of God, who understand they're part of the church, engaged in the greatest rescue mission ever, who are jumping into the water, swimming as fast as they can, touching as many as they can, and at the end of the day, loving Christ so much, loving his bride so much, that whenever anything good happens, he gets all the glory. Father, may we be intentional as your church. May we never forget that the church doesn't belong to us, but we are the church and we belong to you. We want to carry out your mission. We want to do it in a way that pleases you. We want to be winsome, knowledgeable, and courageous. We want to be conspicuous without being obnoxious. Help us to be the church that you called us to be. In Jesus' name.